Welcome to One Decision. I'm your guest host, Helena Humphrey. Today we are unpacking the enduring impact of the Iraq War, both on the country and beyond. It's been 20 years since the United States and its allies invaded Iraq in 2003. A decision which claimed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, resulted in a long and bloody insurgency and destabilised the Middle East for years to come. At the time, the Bush administration and a coalition of allies justified the war as a necessary measure to disarm Saddam Hussein of alleged weapons of mass destruction. Ultimately, none were found. It was a divisive and controversial topic then, and its aftermath has been no less contentious. One member of that coalition was Spain, and the country's prime minister at the time, José María Aznar, took the decision to support the war despite widespread opposition within his own country as well as Europe. I sat down with him to find out more about his decision to go against the grain and his thoughts on the conflict two decades later. I want to begin our conversation by turning the clock back quite a long way, in fact, turning the clock back to September the 11th, 2001. And of course, you were already Spain's prime minister at that moment. And I think it's fair to say that we all remember where we were on that that day uh, of those devastating terror attacks on the United States. We remember the magnitude of that moment. But I wonder, did you feel then that this was an event so big that it would not just affect the United States, but Spain? Two in some way. Yes, uh, at the time of uh, September 11 attacks, uh, I was in my second term as prime minister in Spain, and uh, I recall very well what is the, the, the this moment of the attacks, uh, the September 11, because they transformed the, the the world. Before September 11, 2001. Terrorists are considered in the, the most part in the world as a local problem in different countries. For instance, you have uh, problems of terrorism in, in uh, North Ireland or IRA. You suffer terrorism in Spain. We suffer some attacks of terrorism in, uh, in the Middle East. But uh, attacks of September 11 transform totally the division of the existence of terrorism. And one thing that a lot of countries consider a local problem become the most important problem in the world. I want to talk more about your relationship with the United States because your two terms in office were notable in that you forged a closer relationship with the United States and with then British Prime Minister Tony Blair who himself was looking to America, uh, the special relationship, and, of course, George Bush. What, for you, made a more pro-US foreign policy more attractive for Spain? Because, uh, you know, the, all the leaders in, the, in different periods of the, of, of, of the time, as um, my good friend Henry Kissinger explained very well, is uh, leaders are in transit always between the past and the future. The past is the history of the countries, the history of the world, the history of our country, and uh, the future is uh, to have a strategic idea about the future. And we consider always that the most important moments of the Spanish uh, life in history was in the Atlantic. 
uh, you can imagine we discover uh, America <laughs> and uh, America was uh, for us uh, the, the most important thing in our history in a country with uh, as Spain that is a member of the European Union to be a good European for me means to be a good Atlantic ally and uh, this idea transform uh, our relationship especially with the US and with the uh, UK as well. I want to talk more about that closer Atlantic allyship, that closer partnership with the United States, which meant as a consequence that you had the ear of the US president and vice versa. Uh, you had a closer relationship with George Bush. And essentially in 2003, that becomes the backdrop to a meeting in New York Um on the sidelines of the UN Security Council, where you have the opportunity to meet behind closed doors with the then US President George Bush. And the topic of discussion, naturally at that time, was Iraq. We can imagine what some of the other topics are in terms of weapons of mass destruction, whether or not to invade. Of course, what I'm really curious about is how did that discussion go? What do you remember from it? What did George Bush say to you? I think I shared my time. My first term, I shared this uh, this term with President Bill Clinton. And the relationship between Spain and, and the US was uh, excellent. And uh, President Clinton asked me for support of the, the US in uh, different movements, different actions against Saddam Hussein. And at that time, at the time of uh, Bill Clinton, the Congress in the U.S. approved the Iraq Act. The goal of this Iraq, uh, Iraq Act was to remove the regime in Iraq. And then the second term I, I shared with George Bush, I established a very close relationship with him as consequence of the attacks of September 11, of the, of the division of, of terrorism and so on. And in one moment, uh, uh, President Bush asked me to establish a very great solidarity, a very close relationship between Spain and the U.S. Why? Because uh, they had fear that uh, Saddam Hussein, that they considered Saddam Hussein a very serious threat for the peace. They considered that Saddam Hussein can use his power to, to threat uh, his neighbors. And they considered that Saddam Hussein can uh, use several uh, weapons uh, dangerous weapons or weapons of mass destruction in, in his hands. Well, this is the question. And uh, I decide to support this because for me it's an expression of the Atlantic solidarity. If you ask me uh, now, uh, I can tell you that I consider that the world is better without Saddam Hussein. Militarily, the operation was a very great success. Politically, with a problem in the aftermath of uh, invasion, with a lot of problems, maybe for the lack of uh, enough intelligence. I think uh, then circumstances uh, improving, and uh, it's very interesting to uh, consider for the first time in uh, decades, in, in, maybe in history, the Iraqi people have the opportunity to, to vote in the elections and free election. And uh, this is very important for me. I'm still very curious about that meeting and 
about what George Bush said to you, uh, whether he gave you evidence of alleged weapons of mass destruction, because one thing that's interesting in reading the Chilcot report by the British government is it is reported that you told Tony Blair uh, you were worried after a meeting with George Bush that you had seen an excess of confidence. So you had doubts. We, there is not a, a military problem because the power of the, of the U.S. was uh, so impressive that this is uh, always uh, um, very serious concern to to organize an, uh, an attack to overthrow a dictator. But uh, intelligence and information, leaders in uh, every time, depend on the information. The information can be <laughs> good or less good. <laughs> but I think, honestly, that the idea to, to, to overthrow Saddam Hussein is an idea that exists in, in American uh, policy, that exists since the time of the first war in, uh, in the world, that exists especially for the Iraqi Act approved in the times of Bill Clinton, and uh, George Bush uh, taking the decision to, to move uh, on and, and, to, and to eliminate the, the regime. No, this is uh, the, the most important question for me. But ally or not of the United States, we saw the European Parliament passing non, a non-binding resolution against the war. We saw Germany, France, the two biggest players in Europe opposing the war. And I think one could argue they don't have a worse relationship today with the United States than Spain? No, it is true as well, but Europe is not only Germany and France. Germany and France are very important in Europe, but it's not only the question of Germany and, and France. No? Germany was in, in the first moments in favor, then changed position, and the France opposed always. But uh, we have our, our freedom to, to take decisions. So, you're saying, you know, you're calm, you have peace with the decision that you took at the time, with the information you had available to you at the time. If you had other information available, better intelligence, intelligence that said that there was no weapons of mass destruction, would you still be as at peace with that decision? I, I repeat that I consider that the world is better without Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein was a, a very murderous dictator. He invaded uh, his neighbors. He launched a very cruel war uh, against uh, Iran. And he has a very serious threat. And he tried to have uh, nuclear uh, weapons. They have uh, chemical weapons at the time. Well, maybe you can improve the system, the intelligence systems in several times in the world. Okay. The history is the success and the failures of the intelligence system. No, with the same information, I would take the same decision. So you were just saying that, of course, Germany and France is not the entirety of the European Union. Politicians are not the entirety, of course, of a country, and so. You had to face your own population, the Spanish population, uh, over 90% of which were against the war in Iraq. Uh, we saw millions demonstrating on the streets right around the world. How did you feel giving Spain's support to a war which 
the majority in the country didn't back, they didn't support it. We don't participate in, the, in this, uh, in, in the invasion of Iraq military. We, we give uh, political support. But there is not exist Spanish troops that fighting in the invasion of, of Iraq. Politically, I support this idea and I support uh, the United States. How is possible that uh, I ask solidarity for the U.S. in my fight with, uh, in our fight with uh, terrorism in Spain, and I can uh, I cannot offer my solidarity in the United States? We cannot understand the situation in Iraq if not understand the consequences of September 11. Iraq is a consequence of September 11. Well, George Bush himself has said in 2006 that Saddam Hussein himself did not have a direct hand in September the 11th. How did you feel hearing those comments when he came out on a world stage and said that? One thing is to have a direct uh, responsibility in the attacks of September 11. Another thing is that the attacks of, of September 11 transformed totally the idea of fighting terrorism. And uh, the fighting terrorists is not only a question to do in-house, domestically. Fighting terrorists is, is to fight terrorism in the origin and, and trying to eliminate the threats that uh, is uh, the source of this uh, of, of these threats. You know? 20 years uh, later, there is no more terrorist attacks in the US and the terrorists uh, suffer very serious problems. Maybe we have the problem of the ISIS, but the threat of terrorism is down in the world today, fortunately. How long should they have stayed in? Because once Barack Obama then came to power, there was the swift drawdown. Would you have liked to have seen them there for much longer? Yeah, the decision to Barack Obama to pull out troops from, uh, from Iraq was a mistake. I consider as well the decision to try to establish a nuclear deal with Iran as well, because this nuclear deal with Iran is the question is if not is is not is a question if it's desirable or not, but this is a good or bad uh, deal or good or bad agreement, and I consider that the decision to pull out American troops from Afghanistan has been very detrimental for the interests of the U.S. and the Western world in the in the for the stability of the world. The argument could be made, though, that there was a mistake made following the removal of Saddam Hussein not to have sufficient planning for the aftermath and for what happened then. And I wonder what your thoughts are on the thinking from the Allied forces or the lack of planning for that period. I think yes, uh, this is was one of the most important problems, no? The most important problem not was the decision to overthrow Saddam Hussein, was, the, was maybe the um, excess of trust. The situation in Iraq was very complicated, no? But uh, I think uh, that the, the situation will be very worse with a, a murderous dictator in the power in, in Iraq. And if we look at what happened during the war in Iraq, tens of thousands of Iraqis were killed in that war, uh, at least 11 Spanish service personnel as well. Do you find yourself thinking about those people? I think a lot of, of, of these people, no? 
may I think the, that the responsibility of the leaders don't change for these circumstances. I have a very close, uh, I, I feel my feeling is very close a lot of the, of the people that suffer in, 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 this, uh, in the country with these consequences. No? To have a, feel, a feeling very close to the people uh, is not incompatible with taking the decision that trying to improve the, 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 the world. Why? Because this is the, 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 the total responsibility of the leaders. We must understand the situation and take a decision. And the finally, uh, finally, the question is, the world is better or, is, uh, or, or, or no? If you take the decision, I think that the world is better. Leaders, as you say, they have to act. They have to react. They have to take tough decisions. And in some cases afterwards, they say, we got parts wrong. That was something that George Bush and Tony Blair have said. They said mistakes were made and Tony Blair made a qualified apology for the use of misleading evidence and failure to prepare for the aftermath of the invasion. Do you agree with them on that front? This is a different, the, the question for me, as, uh, as, and I can repeat, is uh, Blair and other leaders Bush and other leaders, Clinton and so on, taking the decision with the, the information that we that uh, we have in this moment. With in this moment, we have the information. To, to, you, you take the decision. If uh, you have another information, this is another another question, another life. Huh? But the question is, I, I repeat, for me, the action of uh, George Bush and Tony Blair was honestly. And, uh, and the support for the most, the, the, the major part of the countries of the European Union, and try uh, and forge a coalition, international coalition for 50 countries, is a demonstration that uh, there is a lot of people, a lot of countries, a lot of leaders, very very concerned about the situation, about the consequences that uh, that can produce in the world that Saddam Hussein uh, keeping in power. But you wouldn't apologize for supporting the US and the UK? I am totally I am very proud of the support of Spain to the US. And uh, I am very proud of the alliance between uh, the US and Spain. And I am very proud of, uh, of, the, of the, all my actions that uh, have uh, in mind to reinforce uh, the Atlantic Alliance and the transatlantic relationship. That is the relations that establish more freedom, more prosperity, more security in the, in the world since the Second World War. When was the last time you spoke to T Tony Blair or George Bush and how did those conversations go? I keep in very good relation, relationship with, uh, with both. We are friends. We're talking with, uh, with a lot of, uh, of trust, uh, with, uh, with a lot of, uh, of confidence. No? I personally consider that uh, Tony Blair was a very strong leader for the UK and the European world as well. And I think George Bush uh, making a very complicated decision after the, the September 11 attacks and, uh, and trying to keep in the unity of your country and the leadership of the US in, in the world. Keeping this uh, leadership and uh, honestly and uh, can be, can, is possible to taking uh, or commit mistakes back. Uh, the unity of this country was very important at the moment. 
and the force uh, the alliance was extremely relevant as well in this moment as this current crisis in the world uh, show us every day that if not exist the reaction of NATO if not exist the capabilities of, uh, of uh, European and Americans to act uh, together the situation in Ukraine and the situation in, in Europe will be today worst and very very most dangerous uh, in, in this moment Jose Maria Aznar thank you so much for your time very great pleasure Jose Maria Aznar there, the former Prime Minister of Spain, reflecting on his decision to support the war in Iraq. After that conversation, I sat down with my co-host, Sir Richard Dearlove, to talk more about the legacy of the Iraq war, both today and in the future, for the country as well as the region. Sir Richard, great to see you again. How are you doing? I'm very well indeed. I'm going to kick straight off by going back briefly to my interview uh, with Jose Maria Aznar. And in it, he was really clear. Um, what came through was that, in his opinion, the world is a better place without Saddam Hussein. And given everything that we've seen over the past two decades since the Iraq war with Hussein's ousting and all of the fallout that we've seen over the past two decades, is that a fair assessment in your book? Yes, I think it is. I essentially agree with that position, unsurprisingly. Um, <clears throat> and I think the world is a better place without. Saddam, uh, we were almost uh, inert, you know, as he killed members of his own population, particularly Kurds and particularly Shia. So, um, you know, we rid the world, or the Iraqis did, partly, with some help from the West, uh, you know, of a terrible dictator. The fallout from the war, of course, has been considerable. Um, there are many different facets we could talk about and we will talk about. And um, one of them I want to talk about is the increase in sectarian violence with various factions within the country, you know, fighting for power with Saddam Hussein gone. And if we even think recently, um, thinking back to August 2022, we saw clashes. We saw clashes when the Shiite cleric Muqtada al-Sada resigned from Iraqi politics. We saw his loyalists clash with rival rival groups storming Baghdad's so-called green zone. And I remember very clearly at the time um, interviewing one scholar around that time. And she told me, that people in her community, both in Iraq and, and in the academic community, were really worried at that time that civil war could break out. And she said on the WhatsApp chat group that night, they were talking about, you know, is this a civil war? Is this violence that could break out, that could last? She said, best case scenario, a couple of weeks or potentially even a few years. Now, it didn't come to that because we saw uh, a new prime minister with uh, Sudani, but I think it was a real pertinent reminder, a recent reminder of how volatile things have remained. So at this particular juncture, two decades on, are things better for the Iraqi people who are at the heart of this now and in the near future? Well, my understanding is from talking to people who've recently been in Iraq, um, and I have to say this is a second-hand judgment, but it is based on what Iraqis are saying, both Sunni and Shia. Yes, the country is a significantly better place. Um, I think and when you remove a dictator as brutal as Saddam was, 
then I think inevitably you have a massive destabilization because the country had been suppressed largely by fear um, and the brutality of his regime. And yeah, uh, you know, the aftermath looked pretty ghastly. But I do think now you can make the judgment that Iraq is one of the few countries in the Middle East which is trying to operate as a democracy. Um, it's still heavily factionalized. The factions do shout at each other. They make a lot of noise. There are occasional outbreaks of violence, but it isn't anything like it was. And actually, the country is beginning to operate quite successfully. Another thing people might point to, though, in terms of the fallout, not confined to the sectarian violence, which which has rocked the country for decades following the ousting of Saddam Hussein, is also uh, the rise of the extremist group ISIS, right? Um, and of course, you'll probably remember, Sir Richard, um, I think it was in 2017 that President Trump at the time triumphantly declared uh, the 100% defeat of the uh, caliphate. And, you know, of course, it's fair to say we have seen a uh, resurgence in 2020 with attacks. Um, ISIS had a new leader in 2022. But overall, in your assessment, to what extent has ISIS been defeated? Yeah, well, I think we have to be quite cautious here because I'm not sure I would connect ISIS that closely in a way with political events in Iraq. Obviously, there's a linkage. And I think, you know, to talk about defeat of an idea rather than an organisation is also extremely awkward. I think ISIS as a franchise with a central organisation has largely been dismantled. ISIS... Um, as an ideology that inspires extremist terrorism, largely connected with extremist Islam, is a different phenomenon because, you know, it can inspire individuals and small groups. Certainly ISIS has had a very rough time of it, but it's still extant, or its inspiration is still extant in certain areas like um Al-Shabaab and Somalia, um, pieces, bits and pieces of the Maghreb in particular, Mali, um, bits of the more remote bits of Mauritania. But let's face it, the problem is of a, is of a lesser size. Um, that doesn't mean we've entirely escaped, escaped its consequences, but it, it, it's not as potent as force. And we're better at dealing with it from the security point of view than we were. But I think one of the worst mistakes that was made um, after the invasion, which was a decision that was taken by a small group of American officials uh, without consultation, was to disband the Iraqi military, which was crazy. And when the military was disbanded, all these soldiers disappeared off to their villages, largely with their weapons, I mean, with their side weapons, um, and they became an unemployed, very dissatisfied group that were easily whipped up into a sort of opposition to the West. So, you know, you're pointing to basically disenfranchised troops in the wake of an invasion um, at the same time when you're starting to see kind of the chaos that comes from an invasion and political um, a political vacuum there in Iraq. And, and I think you make that point, which is really important about uh, differentiating between the idea 
of ISIS and its ideology. And actually, in terms of it being an organization, and we certainly know that some people who were in that organization today, um, you know, have either been in refugee camps, for example, in Syria, in Al-Hol, um, or they've been imprisoned there, for example. And, and now, I guess, the question is, when looking at the risk of ISIS, or at least one question for me is, you know, if you look at the situation in Al-Hol in Syria, and there were patrols between the US as well as uh, the main uh, rebel group, Syrian rebel group, um, according to the rebel group, some of those operations for surveillance for IS, former IS fighters, have broken down because of the threat of uh, a Turkish ground offensive, because of the threat of airstrikes. This is something the US pushes back on. But according to the main Syrian rebel group, they're saying that this is, you know, at times winding down because of that threat. So I guess my question would be, if Erdogan decides in 2023 that he wants to go ahead then with with a ground offensive or airstrikes, we could see potentially thousands of IS fighters who were detained there suddenly released. There is the potential for that. I mean, how much could that actually destabilise regional security? Well, I think it would be a significant problem. Whether it would be a problem of the breadth of ISIS when it, as it were, first appeared as a phenomenon and, and, and started taking over large chunks of Iraq. Um, I'm not sure the second time round it would be that serious, but it would be um, a huge problem. But on the other hand, you have a very effective um, Peshmerga Kurdish military, which has been of huge value to the West in dealing with this problem. Um, and you have a very complicated situation where you have an effective Turkish military who've also been effective uh, in dealing with the problem. But, of course, they're sworn enemies of the Peshmerga and any Kurdish military units. So uh, any destabilisation in that area from the status quo, if it's reasonably peaceful, will be complicated. Whether you know, it would break out into a major sort of global terrorist phenomenon in quite the way that it did in the past, I'm not so sure. I mean, it would be, it would be very destabilising in the immediate area, and it would be a problem. I mean, nevertheless, I, I do get the sense that there's a lot of power potentially resting in Erdogan's hands for 2023. Um, if you were to look at other regional powers, of course, when it comes to Iraq, Iran, of course, is a big player, deeply involved in Iraqi politics since the fall of Saddam Hussein's regime. And uh, Prime Minister al-Sudani now, it strikes me, has a bit of a balancing act because we know that on one hand, he appears to be reluctant to get rid of US troops who have been working in Iraq to, to thwart ISIS. But at the same time, of course, uh, the nature of his position is that he's been helped to power by pro-Iran groups. These groups, of course, are not happy right now with the United States. So where does that leave Iraq then when it comes to working with, looking for a reliable partner? Do you think al-Sudani can, can navigate what strikes me as a tightrope here uh, with Tehran at a, a difficult juncture right now and Washington? My expectation is that he can, and I'll explain why. I think it's important to understand that Iraqi Shia are not Iranian Shia, and that although they are Shia and there's a sympathy between them, there is also a reluctance on the part of um, Iraqi Shia 
as they become a more established force in Iraq, to be beholden to an Iranian regime, particularly an Iranian regime with the character of the current one. So I think that their sort of strategic ambitions in the Middle East have been significantly curtailed, partly because the JCPOA has not been renewed, um, which I thought personally was a, was a lousy agreement. And the reason it was a lousy agreement um, was that, okay, it attempted to control the Iranians in one area, it was the production of a nuclear weapon. But on the other hand, the, 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 the Iranians took it as a sort of laissez-passe from the international community to behave just as they liked across the Middle East. And um, since Qasim Soleimani was assassinated, you know, they have, to an extent, drawn in their horns. Just to pick you up very briefly, uh, talking about these protests in Iran, which have continued and appear to have this longevity, do you think that's changed the calculus for Iraq? Do you think that it's this particular moment that Iraq has been watching and says, okay, perhaps this might not be uh, the partner that we once thought they were? I think it's a little too early to say, but I, I would be inclined to make that judgment. I don't think we quite know the answer, but I think maybe we can look forward in 2023 to um, some significant shifts in Iranian politics. Would you predict that within 2023, that these protests could come to a culmination of that and would finally rid the country of that? The regime is in its terminal phase, but how long that takes is very, very difficult. I'm, I have a reputation for making rash predictions. <laughs> I'm not sure it'll go down in 2023, but it will go down at some time within the next two, three years. All right. So what would an end game look like in that case? Well, an end game would look like a nationalistic government in Iran, but a more reasonable one. Um, uh, I mean, the, the problem with the Iranian regime, it defines itself by enmity towards the West. I mean, that is its defining characteristic. It doesn't have any internal identity of its own other than its extremist policies. So I guess my question would be, how does it get there, though? Because we have seen uh, these incredible protests from such strong protesters in Iran and internationally, and yet the response from the regime has also been horrific to see so many Iranian men in particular on death row, being ex executed to see these political prisoners, they don't seem to want to be giving an inch. So how do we get from a theocracy to a nationalist government? What would be the thing that actually makes this regime say, okay, enough is enough? Well, when the Praetorian Guard stop protecting the regime, it will fall apart. And I mean, that's pretty much what happened to the Shah. You know, the powers that supported the Shah eventually failed to support him any longer because his rule had become, you know, so unpopular. And I think that there, there could become a tipping point uh, in the power structures that hold the theocrats uh, in position. 
Um, just talking about, uh, for example, uh, you mentioned the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, the commander of the Revolutionary Guards in Iran, um, and also the decision that we saw from Trump to exit the nuclear accord with Iran. I mean, for some militant groups, this did result in an anti-US feeling. Um, and we saw some attacks on US personnel. We saw retaliatory strikes. And I just wonder, you know, even though some of these decisions uh these two in particular belong to the previous US administration. Does this actually raise the prospect of a new unauthorized conflict between the US and regional powers, or at least the spectre of violence? Well, I think in the current situation in the Middle East, the spectre of violence is pretty close to the surface. Um, whether it raises it any further, uh, I mean, I think Trump's killing of Qasim Soleimani was largely pulled off, I'm not going to make a moral judgment about it, but it was it was largely done in a way, you know, where there wasn't a clear retaliation by the Iranians, or it was very difficult for the Iranians to retaliate at an equivalent level, because clearly Qasim Soleimani was a hugely significant figure, um, and was also hugely significant in Iran's ability to fight what I would describe as arm's-length wars. Um, I mean, bear in mind, you know, there's a dreadful war still being fought in Yemen, which has been very costly, um, you know, where the Houthi have depended on Iranian support. And, you, and although, you know, there is an Arab response, it's been rather inefficiently executed and fought, particularly by the Saudis, who are not sort of let's say, gifted militarily, not in the sense, you know, the Iranians and, and Houthi, I think, make, make a formidable opposition. Well, talking about the Saudis, um, I know that you had previously uh, raised the spectre or you were asked about a black swan event, um, if we're talking about, you know, broader stability in the Middle East. And one of those events that, that you put forward was the possibility of a war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And just talk to me more about that, and I guess also whether you think the protests in Iran have put more strain on you know, what is already a strained relationship. There is still a significant risk of a broader conflict. On the other hand, there is evidence, one sees it from time to time, that through intermediaries, the Iranians and the Saudis are still talking to each other. I mean, all I think I was saying, there is still this risk in the Middle East of a of a broader conflict and the significance of it uh, would be that if you had two conflicts at the same time one in europe and one in the middle east um the reason that it's a black swan event is that the energy knock-on effects for all of us who are energy consumers would be hugely significant and um, that's why i identified it as a possible you know serious problem on the other hand um, I'm told, you know, there has been some deconfliction through intermediaries between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and maybe for the moment that's keeping, as it were, the temperature at a lower level. But I'm I'm not directly informed about that. I want to touch on a couple of other things that Jose Maria Aznar said, and uh, specifically related to decision making and. Uh, 
you know, of course, the decision to invade Iraq is a decision that we'll look back on forever. And we are still debating. And whether you want to put that on Obama or Trump or Biden, all three presidents have pulled troops from Iraq. Uh, they've pulled them from Afghanistan, even, you know, countries like Germany, for example, where they've been stationed. People like Vladimir Putin are watching that. Erdogan is watching that when it comes to Syria. And I just wonder, has that made the world a more dangerous place? I'm not sure it's made it more dangerous. I think, you know, the, the, the problem for the West, the United States in particular, and it affects the UK too, is I guess the issue of what I would call staying power. Once you've committed to a problem, remaining committed uh, and remaining politically and constructively involved. And of course, that's been a problem with Iraq, and it's certainly been a problem, a huge problem with Afghanistan. It's been also a problem with Syria. To get involved and then to walk away makes it look as though, you know, we're not reliable partners, that we're not reliable strategic builders, because you only have to sit there and wait us out. And if you do that successfully, we'll be gone. Um, I'm talking we in the West. So what then if, if is the alternative? If America isn't going to necessarily, is, is pursuing a policy where they're not putting boots on the ground or at least having troops stationed abroad, if, as you've cautioned, it's certainly not a wise policy to come into a country and then leave in a chaotic way, um, at least, how does the West go about having deterrence to strongman leaders? Um, you know, so for example, how do you see international actors like the US, like the European Union, evolving in the Middle East in the coming years? Well, if we're looking at the Middle East only, you know, I, I guess it's through the well, the, the EU's role is, I think, largely restricted to economic and sort of political support. But if you look, are looking for a model of effective intervention, maybe Ukraine is that model, uh, where we have um, motivated, trained and equipped the Ukrainian military to resist a massively powerful invasion of its country. And okay, it's, it's, it's a pretty catastrophic event for both parties, for both Russia and Ukraine, but the role played by Ukraine's allies, who are mostly NATO members, but of course it isn't NATO that's sustaining Ukraine, it's the individual nations, um, we have a rather surprising result, which is the ineffectiveness of the Russian military in the face of this solid support. I mean, I think if one looks back to Iraq now, I, and there is still a lot of Western support being given to Iraq in different ways, and it has its problems and its faults, but it is largely operating, okay, with a lot of shouting and a lot of um, argument as a reasonably effective, justly governed country. And so Iraq now, 20 years on, no longer under Saddam Hussein, um, I want to try and end on a bright spot, in fact, uh, in 2023. And 
the question is, how can it actually contribute to regional stability? Because if we think about uh, Joseph Borrell, the EU foreign policy chief, uh, specifically referencing that after a visit to the region recently, and he was talking about the contribution that it can actually now make to the region now that it's not purely inward focused. Do you see it that way? Yeah, I do see it that way. And it's hosting, it has been hosting these talks um, between the Iranians and, and the Saudis. I think that's an encouraging sign. Uh, Iraq, you know, as a country, has terrific potential. Um, the agreement over the sale of oil and, you know, whether the Kurdish oil should be sold through the Iraqi central, those problems have been more or less solved. If you talk to Iraqis, they are reasonably optimistic that they have the basis to build a cohesive um, country and for the Sunni and Shia communities to begin to work together and to cooperate um, politically rather than being sworn enemies. Um, and I think one sees the seeds of that arrangement. All right, so Richard, as ever, great to get your insights. Thanks so much for being with us. Helen, I really enjoyed talking to you and thanks for asking some very probing but important questions. That's it for this edition of One Decision. There's a new show every Thursday, so remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.